So last week we examined Paul's statement to Timothy that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And today we're going to look at some of the challenges that the local church then faces as it either attempts to live out that vision of being the pillar and the ground or the buttress of truth, or as it faces members who come into the church with unrealistic and and even sometimes unbiblical expectations of what the church should be. So our passage today is 2 Chronicles chapter 15. If you would stand as we read verses 1 through 5 together. This is God's holy and inspired word. 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 5 says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that we would be a church that seeks out you, that that seeks out truth, that has the expectations of being changed in hearing and, and understanding your word. I pray that that would be the great love of our lives, uh, the expectation and hope of our hearts as we anticipate every Lord's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the challenges that a local church faces every Lord's Day is the variety of expectations that people bring through the doors. Expectations that often range from, make this relevant to me today, to entertain me. And in order to meet those expectations and what are in reality for many demands, God's people, the local church, often alters its worship and its programs and its ministries. But God's word establishes fundamental principles for what he expects in the worship of his people. And the Lord is not fond of compromise. He wasn't fond of Aaron's sons offering what are called what was called strange fire in the book of Numbers. He wasn't fond of Saul, the king, taking on the role of priest in making sacrifices on behalf of Israel. And we shouldn't think that he would be fond of us approaching him in inappropriate and unbiblical ways either. Now some of the names in our passage probably unfamiliar to you. Asa. He was the king of Judah, and Judah's army was attacked by an overwhelming army of Cushites. That's the, that's the context here in this chapter. They were greatly outnumbered, and in desperation, Asa prayed to the Lord, a prayer that we see back in chapter 14, verse 11, where he says, Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely upon you, and in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God, let not man prevail against you. So Asa saw this this battle properly as being the pagan nations trying to usurp God's sovereignty, especially over his people. And God did help Asa. And we're told that the Cushites were struck down by the Lord. Now going abruptly from despair to great victory... In that moment, the people were celebrating on their way back to Israel. 
And while they're traveling, this prophet, whose name is Azariah, the son of Oded, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to give them the message that we read in chapter 15. And here it is again. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And so whether we forsake God or seek God is the key issue every time we gather together as a church. Now, Francis Schaeffer once said, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism. In fact, uh, Christianity and liberalism was the name of the famous book that J. Gresham Machen wrote in the early 20th century. Schaeffer, writing a few decades later, says, actually, the central problem of our age is not liberalism, it's not modernism, and I would add by that it's not postmodernism or consumerism or church growthism. The real problem, said Schaefer, is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tends to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. And so what he did was he recognized the subtle flaw of many churches is not so much that they're heretics or that they promote a social gospel, but that they have, as Jesus complained about the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, they've lost their first love. They've forsaken the Lord by looking to the power of the flesh, to look to self-reliance and self-exaltation, self-fulfillment. And when that continues, the consequences, they're drastic. And if Azariah were to rise up Again, amongst the church today, he would say the same thing as he said to King Asa those many centuries ago. It is time to seek the Lord. Now, the American church has tried demographic studies and national polls. It's tried to reinvent itself to attract a pop culture-saturated people and have found that restructuring everything around their expectations actually diminishes, even compromises the message. The church has tried marketing strategies, the gospel, tried signs and wonders, tried appeals to emotional healing, prosperity, you name it, right? We are a nation of innovators. We have always been creative people. And true to that nature, we've tried everything. And still... Though the American church professes, like the church of Sardis, you know, I mean, you know, speaking back of the book of Revelation, professes like the church of Sardis to have a name that is alive, I fear that much of it is actually dead. And it's time to seek the Lord. That's what Azariah would say to not just our church, but to the whole church and the entire nation. We, it is time to seek the Lord. What does it mean to say that God is with us? Where is he to be found? Well, to the prophet Jeremiah, God said, do I not fill heaven and earth? So where is God? He is everywhere, right? And he's omnipresent. There's no place in which a man can hide from God. That's one of the lessons from Job. Nor is there a place where God is not. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. So the Lord, if he's everywhere, if he's omnipresent, the That means that the issue of finding God is not saying, come and find me like hide and seek, right? We read in 2 Chronicles 15 that the Lord is with us when we are with him. 
And so to say that the Lord is with us is to say, not so much that he's present, but that he is actively supporting and abiding with his people. It's the kind of support that Asa experiences. A small army overwhelmed by the Cushites actually is victorious. But note the condition. I am with you when you are with me. And we're not left to wonder what that means because Azariah goes on to say that to be without God is to forsake him. In other parts of Chronicles, we learn that what it means to seek God and to forsake him. So for an example, in 2 Chronicles 7, we read, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And my eyes will be open, my ears attentive. This is what it means for God to be with us. My eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in that place. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to be with those whose heart is blameless toward him. So seeking God is closely tied to humbling ourselves, to repenting from our wicked ways, to being loyal to the Lord, to, to seeking Him truly, wanting His Word to reform us, to change us. On the other hand, forsaking God is being unfaithful to Him. And so in First Chronicles 10 we're told about how Saul forsook the Lord when he consulted a medium rather than seeking the Lord. And as a result, God put him to death. That's the ultimate forsaking, right? And gave the kingdom of Israel to David. So we seek God because in our humility we realize that he is our only portion and our only hope. As Psalm 77 two says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and my soul refuses to be comforted. I want you to to look at that verse for a moment, and I want you to ask yourself, is that how I felt? And how what I was thinking about as I walked down the hall to come into the sanctuary amongst God's people? The day of my trouble. Are we in a day of trouble? Absolutely. We are in the need, a day of needing the Lord. In the day of my trouble, my hand is stretched out without wearying. You're walking down that hallway going, Lord, I am ready to receive your word. My hand is stretched out. And my soul refuses to be comforted except, and you have to read that into this verse right here, except by God. I'm not going to be comforted by the fact that I just had a successful week. I'm not going to be comforted by the fact that my child accomplished some great thing this week, or or we bought the new house, or we bought the new car, or all the things that would substitute themselves for comforts in our life, or even that I heard good news about my health or whatever. My soul refuses to be comforted by anything but the Lord. And so we want help. We want truth. 
We want reality and we won't stop until we receive it. As C.S. Lewis describes that kind of seeking, he says it's an appetite for God. It's a God-sized appetite and nothing else will satisfy. The lions may grow weak and, and hungry, says Psalm 34.10, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And maybe that explains why we don't see more earnest seeking whether it's in our churches at large or even at our church here. And I, I want to make sure that, that, I don't, that this sermon doesn't become a look at everybody else and how they're not doing things right. Foremost, anytime we look at what the church should be doing, we need to be looking at ourselves and saying, what are we desiring? What are we seeking? Does this describe us? We can't afford to sit in the church week after week with hearts that aren't panting after God, that don't have God-sized appetites. And the reason for that is not only will nothing else satisfy, but friends, out there is the world, the devil, and everything else that knows our weakness, knows our failings. And throughout the history of mankind, religion of some kind has, has always been there to have this profound influence on civilization and the initial monotheistic faith, one God faith of Adam and Eve and later of Noah and his family was quickly replaced by a polytheistic faith in many gods that were superhuman people essentially, like the gods of Olympus, the Jews, and later the Christians, even though they're persecuted by these pagan polytheistic neighbors, right? At least they knew there was a distinction between their faith and that, let's say, of the, the Muslim or the Hindu or others. But in these recent centuries, the devil continues to come up with things that have the very possibility of not just persecuting Christianity, but undermining it altogether. And that is secularism. It's a worldview that says your faith, your religion is a private matter. And secularism is so dangerous because it's not, it doesn't come across as the enemy of religion. It's not like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or any, you know, name it. It's not like any of those because it doesn't reject religion and set itself up as an enemy. It doesn't persecute it. It doesn't try to destroy it. It simply doesn't pay attention to it. It says, you can believe whatever you want. But you'll have to believe it in the privacy of your own home. And you can't tell us what to believe. You can't let your faith affect our institutions. And as a result, what used to be the areas of greatest influence for the church as a whole, even control, is transferred to the state. And we're, we're here in a slowly narrowing, slowly shrinking space of freedom 
as I would put in quotation marks. And the answer is that behind this worldview is the thought that there, there's no such thing as absolute standards, no criteria for what is true or beautiful or right or good, except that each person, each one of you in society as a whole gets to determine what is true and beautiful and right and good. And Christianity is over here and it's professing these absolute standards and it's incompatible. And Satan has learned from previous history that his best method is just to isolate us. Just to isolate you and ignore you. For now. Make you irrelevant. And sadly, that's what has begun to happen with the American church. And Paul would not be happy. After all, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We're, we're to be out here doing battle. We, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and every thought being taken captive to obey Christ. And instead of pulling down these strongholds, we've given over our culture to Satan and these worldviews, and we have allowed the parallel worldviews of relativism and multiculturalism to dominate every aspect of human life. It's at the base of everything that we see happening in society today. In the family, for example, the Bible Absolute standards, right? Defines the family as a married man and woman and their children, biological or adopted together with extended relatives. The Bible speaks of the roles of these individuals as men who are to lead their homes, as sacrificial servants, giving up their own desires where necessary to meet the needs of their wives and children. They're to work to protect and provide for their households even as they lead them. Women are their husband's helpmeets. Their sphere of influence is primarily the home, serving as the managers of the household and the educators of their children. Children are to honor and obey their parents. And when the biblical worldview expresses itself in the family, God is honored. So many different pictures, you know, parent-child, husband-wife, that, that the Bible uses as saying these are expressions of the relationships of God to the church, God to his people, and so on, and, and they are to be used as testimonies in the evangelistic appeal of the gospel. That's what's to happen when the biblical worldview expresses itself. Marriage is upheld as the sacred institution. Neighbors learn the relationship of Christ at church. Children learn the principles of hard work, the fatherhood of God, roles of men and women, respect for authority, you name it. But that's not what happens under the secularist worldview. When the Bible is not the defining standard, when there's no standard at all, the inevitable result is dramatic. People start speaking of companionships and partnerships rather than marriages. If there's no authoritative understanding of the roles of men and women, then, then the fight of the day becomes the opposition to oppression and inequality of women in the family and workplace, and women are sent out into the working sphere. Children are devalued. 
usually placed in daycare. Men are seen as patriarchal tyrants. And if the members of the family don't have an obligation to care for one another, then it will be far easier to advocate two-income families, public school systems, even by extension, abortion, euthanasia, and finally, you have the breakdown of marriage and family altogether as we've seen in the last decade. And don't think that by the, the state kind of shrinking us down into this small sphere and isolating us as the church, allowing us to still exist, that the intent is that this all stays out in society. Because it inevitably seeps into the church and shapes the expectations of those who come through these doors. We see it in the ordination of women, in the tolerance of alternative lifestyles, the development of various age-related cultures separate from the idea of a church body altogether, and the abandonment of leadership of men who are so passive and emasculated that they work all day and then come home to watch their wives continue to run the home while they watch TV. There's a, there's a purpose for why I'm saying these things. And I'll get to it in just a moment. But I want to look at one more example. We see secularism also happening in, in our government today. The biblical worldview says that laws are discovered, not made. That means that men and women can't make up their own laws. They must find laws that already exist. But where would they exist? They if no person can make up a law, who makes them? Well, the Lord does, because God is righteousness, because he is justice, because he is holiness. So his laws and principles are the ones that count, and, and sometimes they are revealed directly, as in the laws we find in Scripture, and in other circumstances, God has given us the wisdom to take and look at all of these principles that God has revealed and to adapt them to our day. But the secular worldview says, no, laws are made by human beings. Furthermore, because all things are relative, what was a law yesterday can be overturned by the exact opposite today. In fact, lawmakers have even created the concept of retroactive application so that a person can be found guilty of breaking a law that didn't even exist at the time that they broke it. And so the legislative, the the legal systems have become the most powerful forces of secularization in our society. Congress, courts, systematically working to remove all final bits of Christianity from society. Don't be naive to think that that is not ultimately a large part of the agenda. You know, it used to be that decades ago we were we were fuming over the thought of that you had to remove all statement of the Ten Commandments from our public institutions, right? Whether it was a courthouse or some other place. Or that you couldn't pray at a graduation ceremony. Well, friends, that was just the start of a, a very long, steep, slippery slope. And what does it mean for the church? Well, just as with the family, the, this is all seeping into the church it shapes the expectations of people who come here. Christians start to believe that they have the freedom to operate contrary to God's established principles. 
They talk about liberty and grace, which become code words for I want to be able to do what I want, when I want, where I want, no matter how it affects someone else. They fail to exercise discipline because the principle of tolerance, as we're learning in society as a large, is so important. And so when it comes to the church, we need to be tolerant in the church. And therefore, no discipline. After all, our society has created laws which, which promote promiscuity, challenges the fundamental principles of Scripture. What is, who is the church to judge and say what is right and wrong? And we could talk about all the other areas. We could talk about the arts and, and media and culture and how all of these different areas are seeping into the church. But what I want you to picture is... Just like some of the communities right up near Sacramento are experiencing, as the water keeps flowing in, you start seeing the water seeping over the edge. The levee's starting to be covered, you know, covered and the water flowing over. And pretty soon the water starts flooding down the streets. It's coming in from all angles. And I'll simply say what Paul says in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Paul doesn't say that we should think upon what we think is noble, right, pure, and lovely. But we are to give our attention to what God defines as true, noble, and pure, and lovely. And that will impact what happens in our churches. Because it will define what our message is. It will define what our values are that we embrace. It will define what programs and ministries we support and create. The church cannot afford to ask. And here's the thing. This is why I talked about this, because I I felt like you could identify with what's going on in our society and how it is subtly shaping some of the expectations that we have as we come through these doors on a Sunday morning. The church as a whole, with a capital C, cannot afford to ask what is expected by those who attend. She must instead seek the Lord and what he desires. She must identify what is noble, pure, lovely, and good and teach those things. She must not be shy at preaching the offensive message of the Lord. She cannot afford to keep trying to bend over backwards to be relevant And to meet expectations because the expectations are wrong to begin with in so many ways. And we must hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. You hear that? The plausible words of wisdom that are the types of words that meet the expectations of the day. That sound right and relevant and good. 
based upon what people were expecting to hear, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom. And I would add to that, you know, by understanding wisdom of men, we, we understand that as unbiblical in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Secularism, relativism, all of the isms, they produce people who love and exalt themselves. And as a result, we are taught from birth that we should pursue the American dream of maximizing life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness as the world defines all of those things. We believe that others love us when they let us be ourselves, express ourselves. And then we believe that we love others by allowing them to do the same. That leads to churches filled with independent, sovereign individuals who are constantly evaluating their experience based on, am I getting my needs met? Am I happy? Am I content? Am I satisfied? Am I being recognized? Am I comfortable? Am I judged? Am I entertained? All of the questions. But with no expectations of required sacrifice and all in time to get home in enough time to be productive on a Sunday afternoon. And layered on top of that is the belief that everything, including our relationships, is a matter of choice and the basis of how the object that we're consuming will benefit us. Is this relationship going to benefit me or is this just a dead end for my energy and effort? And if life becomes a series of negotiating attachments and commitments all on the basis of what they provide me as a benefit, then I'm going to do everything I can, just like I do in the store, to maximize my purchases. I'm going to look for the discounts. That means less energy on my part. Maximum return. I like that family because they, they give back. You know, There's a reciprocation here. I put in a little bit of effort and I get it back. That's what I would expect. It's an exchange of value. And we are consumers. We rarely make decisions based upon deeper unseen qualities. And so we'll come and we'll listen to the music and the preaching and we'll look around at other people and we'll ask, do they look like me? Will I be comfortable with them? Did the sermon hold my attention? Was the music good on the way home? Then offer an explanation or uh, sometimes a critique of everything that happened that day. I like most of those songs. Why do they keep doing that song? And why every 12 weeks? Are they going to change the liturgy yet? Why don't we have more programs for the teens? We evaluate the experience rather than our hearts and judge the church rather than letting God's word judge us. And sadly, what's tragic is that Christians who come and go from churches are so often imitating what, just the, what the leaders themselves are doing. Pastors come for several years, 
They hear of another better opportunity, just like the corporate ladder of where's the next bigger church, more successful church, move on. And in all of this, the world is looking at the church and going, oh, they're just like us. There's nothing different there. It looks just like corporate America. It looks just like, you know, the neighborhood down the street. It looks just like the stores. So why would the non-Christian bother with this gospel unless he or she is entertained or see something that works for the moment? So friends, we can't afford to let that happen with the church. Yes, sometimes we need to have the feedback from the entire body. There are times when we need to, to circle the wagons and say, what are we doing as a church that is not being faithful to God? Where have we as a church found ourselves in, in totality being drawn down these directions that I've been talking about this morning? We need that, but we can't afford to pull the people who come through the church doors and ask what would make them content. We are coming to hear truth. We're coming with hands outstretched. When you hear a sermon, you should want to be like the Berean and examine the scriptures by what you have heard so that you can make whatever adjustments necessary to conform to be more like Christ. And we all ought to delight in the opportunity to be exposed by God's word, knowing that that is for our good. And so in our morning's passage, Azariah says, for a long time Israel was without the true God. How could that be? They've been the nation of Israel with all of the systems in place for, for decades, centuries. How can Azariah say that for a long time Israel was without the true God? They were without a teaching priest, without law. It's because when they went into the environments in which they were surrounded by an opposing culture, they, they found themselves being assimilated. That was not a Star Trek reference. But they found themselves being assimilated, like in Egypt, right? So absorbed into the culture of Egypt that once God rescues them, from slavery, they want to go back. And that's what Azariah is pointing back to that time. He says, for a long time Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, without law. But they began to cry out to the Lord in their distress. They sought him, and he was found by them. You can substitute the phrase, the American church, for Israel. And it's possible that you have a description of our situation today. Without the true God, Christ having removed his lampstand and his blessing, without a true priest, without the law of God and his word saturating everything in their existence, because we have forsaken God. But there is hope. There is hope. Because if we will seek God, he will be found by us. Last week we talked about the church as the pillar and the 
the buttress of truth. We talked about this grand vision that Christ had in establishing the church. It was certainly not to become what so much of the church has been today. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, I exhort you that what we are to do is to recapture that vision of what the church is to be and to be longing to come back every Lord's Day to hear God's worth, to hear Him thundering in the sanctuary of God's people. To hear him proclaiming the day of salvation. Where you will be reminded of your need and of your helplessness apart from God. Where you will be invited through the liturgy, not the lethargy, the liturgy to return to him, to not forsake him. God tells his people in Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Why? Because it's a heart issue, friends. It's a heart issue. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, Joel says. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. He wants our hearts. In Second Chronicles, Azariah reminded the people of what the nation of Israel once did at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 describes that. It says how the Israelites arrived at the base of the mountain and, and the Lord told Moses, go to the people, set them apart, consecrate them, cleanse them today, tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Imagine if that was kind of our attitude, right? As we are, the first days as we leave this, we're, we're meditating upon what we heard. We're remembering the goodness of what it was like to be amongst God's people. We're looking forward to the other opportunities that present themselves during the week to, to gather again, to encourage, to be delighted by and edified by one another in the family of God. But as we get to the middle of the week, we're starting to go, it's already been several days. I can't wait to get back. And then we begin to prepare our hearts, begin to clean our garments. Because we realize God is going to be in his holy temple. And it says, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they will come up on the mountain. You read these things and you go, wow, this was serious. And it was appropriately serious because God was in his holy temple. God. When I was preparing this sermon, thinking about the aspect of seeking God and reverence, it occurred to me how our idea of seeking God so easily becomes complacency. Like singing the words of a chorus, a familiar song. We've sung so many times that we don't even really think about what the words mean anymore. There are times when 
you know, we sing sometimes such powerful songs that when you think for a moment about them, you're sometimes moved, right? Because you're remembering, wow. And then you think to yourself, I've sung this like 50 times in the last 10 years. I'm only moved by it every few times, partly because of familiarity, but partly because I just get used to singing at the surface. I think that's how we we treat church. But we are seeking the one who is a consuming fire. The one who does not want compromise, who does not want complacency, who wants us to shake off all of the expectations that are unbiblical, that have been influenced by the improper worldviews of our time. And when we come to the mountain to hear the thundering of God, we are to prepare. We are to be ready. We are to have reverence. The same reverence that Solomon talks about. We've heard this before. Ecclesiastes 5. Walk prudently. So, so far we've got this image, right? Preparation for the time of being back together. It's a combination of joy. It's a combination of reverent awe. We walk down the hallway. We have our hands outstretched. We have our soul not ready. You know, we can't be satisfied by anything except because we have this God appetite for the things of God. We're coming with a sober mind. And Solomon adds that and says, walk prudently. So we're beginning to think about Am I coming with a proper attitude? How am I still thinking in the mindset of these other worldviews? How am I still thinking as the independent and the individual and the one who's wanting to to consume a product today or the one that wants to evaluate my experience by what I'm going to get out of it? How am I coming to the church today with a mind that God is going to change me? That God is here. Walk prudently, draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. That in itself is sobering, isn't it? So you realize that as you come with all the unbiblical expectations and, and you leave and you, you think of yourself as the master of everything that took place and the ability to critique what was good or wasn't based upon how your expectations were met. Solomon's calling that the sacrifice of a fool and you do not know that you're doing evil in the midst of that. Don't be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. God is in heaven, you on earth, therefore let your words be few. saying, watch your step. I'm reminded of last week, Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord? It was confirmed by us, to us by those who heard him. So you put all that together, when the Israelites, they gather at the mountain, they aren't expecting to sit back comfortably and listen to God tell them that he has a wonderful plan for their lives. They aren't expecting to be validated as individuals and families without regard to the rest of the people around them. They are there to witness God 
They are there coming in recognition that everyone around them is coming with the same intent, with the same need, and that is to get direction from God. They're there to witness. They're there to be blessed. Not even so much by what is to come, but by the fact that they are invited to be there in the first place. And so even as they come walking prudently and sober-mindedly, they come walking joyfully with an attitude of thankfulness that God has called them and drawn them to this place to begin with. I'm at the face of the I'm at the mountain. I could have been left out there, but God has drawn me here. And this, this is his people. And we are the body. And we are coming to bear witness. We are coming to hear his word. We are coming to get instructions. And if you combine that with what we reminded ourselves of at the end of last week and how all of that's being observed by the world and by the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, it's not just that everything is being observed to see if God was wise in in saving a people. Or in breaking down the dividing line of Jew and Gentile, he's waiting to see, can they really be different? Can they truly exist as a church when they live in this first world country glutted with entertainment and the worship of self and craving even more superficiality? Can they come for something that is actually transcendent, that is actually important? absolute and valuable? Can they come actually in repentance? Can they weep over sin and mourn over sin? Can they be broken? Can they love the neighbor who doesn't give them back the value that they expect? Can they actually come to hear the word of God and and hear not in a way like they sang the song a thousand times and they don't hear the words, but can they actually sit down and let the words seep in and change them so that what amused them before is causing them to weep? To resolve to turn from their ways. To leave a changed people. And I hope you hear that in all of this, I'm not saying that there's no joy in all of this. Not at all, but remember that dancing follows what? It follows the mourning. We mourn over our sin, and Jesus turns our mourning into dancing. That's why the prophet Joel says that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So friends, let us go forth, and then let us come back again next week, walk down that hall, say the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him.
Let it be a call to worship, a call to repentance, and know that the Son of God has become for us wisdom from God, that we will seek Him, He will be found by us, that He will be our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, and it's in that moment that we become not only the people of God, but a useful people of God, the people who will take on this world. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of great blessing. Thank you for your word and for your encouragement to a right perspective of of what we are to be as the church. We've set our expectations so low. Oftentimes we have unbiblical expectations. And Lord, everything becomes rote and routine and we lose our first love and our love returns back to being ourselves. And Father, I pray that we will not be a church of loud, chattering, independent, sovereign selves. But Father, we will be a family, a body, a household, the mighty church of the living God. And I pray that you'll be glorified because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.